Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, well last week I left you hanging with Kenny Bianchi being picked up for the murders of two women in Bellingham, Washington. Now if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you should before this one. Now references tonight are pretty much the same as last week. The book The Hillside Stranglers, the inside story of the killing spree that terrorised Los Angeles by Darcy O'Brien. Now, there is a bit of a trigger warning on this. It goes into extreme detail on each of the murders. Now, if you can handle that, that's okay, but just a bit of a warning. Uh, The Sacramento Bee, The Morning News, The Herald News, Indianapolis Star, Beacon Journal, and the LA Times. Plus, there's a little bit of court records I was able to find. Okay, so let's get stuck into it. All right, so in the latter half of 1977, Angelo Buono and Kenny Bianchi go on a murder fest in LA, raping and strangling multiple women. Now, there were nine between October 17 and December 14 of 77, with one more on the 17th of February 1978. Now, the bodies aren't hidden. In fact, most are found relatively quickly, and they seem staged. A task force was set up to try and catch the killers and at the time the investigators were pretty sure it was two perpetrators and not one. But the massive media attention about the so-called hillside stranglers hindered the investigation more than it helped because of the huge amounts of leads being called in and not enough staff closely involved in the case to effectively sift through all that data. So by March April and onwards into 1978 with no new cases that they could at least attribute to hillside stranglers, investigators wonder, wonder, sort of wonder if they left town, they'd gone into state, they got locked up or died. Things were going very cold. Then in January of 1979, 22-year-old Diane Wilder and 27-year-old Karen Mandick were found dead in Karen's Mercury Bobcat, and that was just around the corner from where they accepted a house-sitting job in Bellingham from Kenny Bianchi. Now, it doesn't take long for local detectives to put two and two together, and further investigations into Bianchi's Californian driver's licence revealed that he had close links to three of the Hillside Stranglers' victims. Bianchi's wife, Kelly, tells police that the only person he really knows in California is Angelo Buono, and so he's now being investigated. All right, Bianchi, he's denying everything. Well, at least he's saying that he has no recollection of the events on the night when Karen and Diane were murdered in Bellingham. All he says he remembers is driving around the county. Now, he seems very personable, polite. He seems genuinely distressed that he may have caused the deaths of these two women. And he says he's at the point that he feels suicidal that he could be involved at all. Now, his lawyers call in a psychiatric social worker, a John Johnson, to talk with Bianchi. Now, Johnson couldn't see how this guy 
who, as I said before, was this personal, polite and genuinely distressed about not having any recall over these killings, was capable of the murders and possibly also involved in the hillside stranglings. Now, Bianchi sweet-talked this social worker who thought maybe he's suffering from multiple personality disorder, where this upstanding member of society, Kenny Bianchi, indeed couldn't remember the killings because they were perpetrated by another personality inside his mind. All right, so the book and subsequent movie, The Three Faces of Eve, was a 1957 American mystery drama film about the life of Chris Cosner Sizemore, which was written by psychiatrist Corbett H. Thigpen and Harvey M. Cleckley. Now, Sizemore, also known as Eve White, was a woman they suggested might have disassociative identity disorder, and that was then known as multiple personality disorder. Johnson wondered if there were three faces of Bianchi. Now, Bianchi, with his amateur psychological background of reading books on the subject, you know how he he even opened up an office in LA, he picked up on this as maybe a way to avoid the death penalty or get off the charges with an insanity plea. He had seen the movie The Three Faces of Eve before, and by chance, a television two-part movie called Sybil was on his prison TV. Now, Sybil, that's a 1976 two-part TV film about a woman with multiple personalities. As each personality manifests itself to the psychiatrist, Sybil's voice and body language changes and each personality has no idea the others exist until she's hypnotised and she's introduced to them all. Bianchi knows he needs to be careful but he, can re- he reckons he can pull off this multiple personality scam. Now, Donald T. Lundy is called in during March of 79 to analyse Bianchi. Lundy had just a few years before authored a book called Murder and Madness. Bianchi told him that since childhood he had bouts of amnesia and he couldn't recall the events of the night when Karen and Diane were murdered. Lundy recommends that Bianchi undergoes hypnosis to try to see if he indeed has multiple personalities. Now, he's put under hypnosis by John G. Watkins, a professor of psychology. Now, this is something Bianchi's pretty much able to fake pretty well being hypnotised because he knows quite a lot about it. And it's during these sessions that the second personality named Steve Walker comes out. Steve's the opposite of what Bianchi's been able to portray about himself. Steve is rough, he's angry, and he looks like he's been modelled after Angelo Buono, a personality that Bianchi's able to mimic well. Now, Steve claims responsibility for the murders of Karen and Diane, plus nine of the ten hillside murders in LA. And there will be another personality called Billy, now, Billy apparently is the one that gets all of Bianchi's fake diplomas and all this because Billy is the liar and the con man, Steve is the killer, and poor old Kenny, he's just such a nice guy that's got all these people doing all this bad stuff in his head. Now, Bianchi is absolutely conning all these professionals and then the cops get wind of what's going on. They get their own guy in called a Dr. Orn. 
Now, he's able to test Bianchi and disproves that he has multiple personalities. So, in the end, there will be several professionals that believe Bianchi is insane and several that think he's sane. With this, Bianchi has to make some sort of decision. Go to trial or am I going to take a plea deal? Now, he ends up taking a plea bargain. Now, what he has to do is plead guilty to two counts of first-degree murder in Washington, that's the Bellingham murders, and five counts of first-degree murder in California. That's part of the 10 Hillside Stranglings. Now, in exchange, he's also going to give testimony against Buono. So on October the 18th, 79, Bianchi was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in Washington. On October the 22nd, he was sentenced to six concurrent life terms in California. Okay, so if you really, really want to do a deep dive into the whole shenanigans with the shrinks and Bianchi, you've really got to check out the book. We, we don't have time for such detail here, but it's quite interesting how such professionals be, can be conned so easily. And sometimes, I think I've said this before in other episodes, I think they want to have a left-of-field case, and so they're willing to believe anything, because then they can write about it, make a book or whatever. Anyway, we now have to get on to Buono back in Glendale, He's just going about his day-to-day job as an auto upholsterer. Now, this is really because investigators don't have much on him other than Bianchi's confession. With Bianchi back in LA on October the 22nd, Buono is arrested at his auto upholstery shop. As Buono gets arrested, he's asked for his wallet. Now, he replies, hey, I don't own a wallet. A search of his desk drawer of course, uncovers a leather wallet. Now, when they open it up, not only has it two pinholes where, say, a police badge may have been attached, but it also has the imprint of a police badge itself. Now, busting in with this wallet, it's quite surprising because they had no other forensic evidence on Buono. He'd been so careful not to leave any behind and to have left his wallet, which linked him to this police badge, That was very lucky to investigators. As you know, they had a theory that the reason why he was able to get people off the street was because someone was using a police badge, impersonating police. Buono, though, kept his mouth shut, (laughs) except for one instance in jail where he did slip up when talking to a Stephen Barnes, a former Aryan Brotherhood member, that asked him why he killed all the girls. Now, Buono replied, they were no good. They deserved to die. It had to be done and that he only killed a couple, so not to worry. Now, this was reported to police. Now, prison snitch information has to be taken with a grain of salt. Of course, they can manufacture statements that aren't true to help themselves get better conditions or whatever. But what he told authorities sounded like something Buono would say, that they were no good and deserved to die. Now, even Bianchi had told investigators that Buono would say they deserved to die. So it did have some weight. Then, you think everything's going smooth, but Bianchi starts writing letters to his shrinks saying he didn't remember killing anyone, contradicting what he said to get this plea deal. He wrote that what he said to investigators was only to save his life, that's to get off the death penalty, and to make this plea deal that he got. Now, Bianchi 
already had five of the murder charges dropped in the LA slangs out of the ten, right? He was convicted of the other five and the two in Bellingham. And so he evaded the death penalty. Now, he thought if he changes his story, he would become an unreliable witness against his cousin Buono, who, like I said, they've got very little evidence against him. Now, if Buono got off his charges, Bianchi reckoned possibly he could get his conviction overturned or at least lessen the fact that he'd been a snitch. Now, of course, being known as a snitch in prison gets you what's called over there a canine jacket. Now, canine is a classification for prison informers. Bianchi hopes by faking amnesia and having inconsistent statements, it will be determined that he is truly insane and hopefully he's thinking he might get released at some stage, at least into a prison hospital and then out. Without any other strong evidence against Buono, Bianchi's sudden unreliability is going to be a big issue once he is charged and brought to trial. But there's going to be another incredibly crazy event that's going to happen which Bianchi hopes gets his conviction for the Bellingham murders overturned. So, Bianchi knows if he becomes his unreliable witness against Buono, both might be able to scan their way out of convictions for the LA murders, but of course he's still got issues with the Bellingham murders because there's heaps of evidence against him. Now, when he starts getting these letters from this woman, Veronica Lynn Compton, now she's an actress and a playwright. She was born in 1956. She had drug-induced psychosis and was obsessed with serial killers. She'd written a screenplay called The Mutilated Cutter that she sent to Bianchi in prison, hoping to get his opinion about it. Now, The Mutilated Cutter, that was based on the Hillside Stranglings. Now, they ended up corresponding frequently and Veronica fell in love with him. Bianchi thought she might be able to help him get out of prison. So they come up with this crazy plan for Veronica to visit him in prison. He would slip her some of his semen. And because he's a non-secretor, they wouldn't be able to tie it back to his blood type. What she'd do is go out, find a woman, strangle her, and deposit said semen on the corpse. Now, they hoped this would prove that the Bellingham Strangler was still out there and Bianchi would have his conviction overturned. This is crazy. But they did it. Bianchi cuts the finger off a rubber glove. He fills it with his semen and was able to pass it on to Veronica on one of her visits hidden in the spine of a book. Now, Veronica has sticky pages. Veronica ends up going to a Bellingham tavern at around 10pm, introduced herself as Karen to 26-year-old Kim Breed, and they end up having drinks. Now, later they party with Kim's friends, they're drinking, they're doing coke, and then Karen, (laughs) Veronica, invites Kim back to her room at the Shangri-La Hotel for a last drink. Geez, some of these words are just too hard for me. Now, once in the room, Veronica attacks Kim, trying to strangle her. But Kim's fighting this off. She's able to escape. She flees the room and she notifies her friends. Now, Veronica fled the hotel and she ends up flying to San Francisco. Now, when she gets there, she causes some sort of scene at the airport 
And that <laughs> didn't go unnoticed. And that's reported to police. Now, still, Veronica sent, well, she sends a letter and a tape to Bellingham cops stating that Bianchi was innocent and the attempted strangling proved it. Now, police end up joining the dots between the airport ruckus and the attempted strangling. Then they pick up Veronica for questioning. She ultimately would be charged with attempted murder in 1980 and she ends up getting 22 years with no parole. Now, I think she ended up being eligible for parole 1994. Anyway, let's not worry about her. Now, after the failed attempt at getting Bianchi off, Veronica loses interest in him. But she ends up falling in love with Doug Clark, who's another serial killer. <laughs> you can't make this up. Anyway, like I said, let's forget about her. It's about the Hillside Stranglers. And this trial is going to be one of the longest and most expensive in US history to date. It will take two years and two million dollars. But it nearly doesn't get past the preliminary hearing stage. On July 6, 81, Bianchi testifies that he's not sure if he was telling the truth about Buono's involvement in the Hillside Stranglings. Then Buono's attorney moves to have all charges dropped against his client. Now this is denied by the Judge Ronald George who, say, who says it would not be in the furtherance of justice. Then the District Attorney Office they feel there's just not enough evidence to convict Buono now that Bianchi is changing his story and they want to drop the case. But luckily, this judge, he has a good think about everything and he appoints two new attorneys and a special investigator to go over all the evidence. Now they decide there is in fact enough evidence for a conviction. He criticised the prosecution for glossing over much of the evidence in the preliminary hearing and it was in a 36-page report. So he's gone over everything quite well. Now, the, why the other, the original prosecution just wants to give up? It's just mind-boggling. Imagine if that happened now. People would go crazy. Anyway, in November 81, Buono's trial starts. Now, there's going to be plenty of witnesses that would come forward once word got out via media that the alleged hillside stranglers from late 1977 were in custody. Now, this is, we're talking about four years later, this trial starting. Now, one of the witnesses was 24-year-old Catherine Laurie Baker. Now, she was the daughter of actor Peter Laurie. What is noteworthy about her story was that she'd been approached by Buono and Bianchi they were going to abduct her, and of course, they would have just raped and killed her. She recognised them from pictures in the news and realised it was them that had approached her that night. But as they got her and they were going through her ID, they saw a photo of her sitting in Peter Laurie's lap. Now, they let her go because they didn't want the extra attention that a missing and murdered celebrity daughter would bring. So here's a trivia fact. Peter Laurie had the role as Hans Beckett, a serial killer of children, in the 1931 film M. So Google that, go down to your local pub, true crime trivia, and win the, win the night with that one. Bianchi would be on the witness stand for six months. 
That's six months. And he kept shopping and changing his story as he went. And he never once looked at his cousin, Buano. Now, there were 269 witnesses called by the prosecution and 1,309 exhibits to go with all the circumstantial evidence against Buono. Now, the defence team had 123 witnesses and 496 exhibits. Now, this trial would end up being 56,000 pages long. I mean, that's what the court transcripts, 56,000 pages. Just imagine being the jury. The prosecution basically asserted that the murders hadn't been committed by Bianchi alone and Buono was his accomplice. This was because they had such a close relationship and had lived together. The victims were all found in the rough geographical area around Buono's residence and fibres found on two of the victims were similar to those found in materials used by Buono and his upholstery business. They also stressed the differences in the Bellingham murders, where because Buono wasn't there, Bianchi stuffed up and was caught straight away. See, looks like Buono's the big brains in this, and he makes sure he does everything carefully. Whereas Bianchi, bang, straight away he got caught. Also, most of the hillside strangler victims had empty bladders. Now, Buono had made his victims go to the toilet before strangling them so that they wouldn't pee everywhere when he killed them. This is what happened with the first victim, Yolanda Washington. She peed in the car. Now, Buono was identified as the driver of the car that Judith Miller had got into before she disappeared and turned up dead. Then there was the procession of ex-girlfriends and sex workers that testified about Buono's sexual violence and depravity. Okay, just sort of close your ears for about 30 seconds if you're a bit sensitive, if you don't want to hear the next bit, right? I'll give you a couple of min- couple of seconds to stick your fingers in your ears. Okay, these ex-girlfriends and sex workers told how we would use unlubricated dildos on them, pinch them, bite them, and make them perform oral sex in a way that they would pass out. This was to show that he is pretty violent during sex. Then, remember the woman Buono had terrified in the library the night they were using the payphone to book Kimberly Martin from the sex agency? Well, she identifies Buono and Bianchi. The date, location and time she gives corroborated the fact that they were both there, the cousins were there, when they booked Kimberly services. Then there's Becky Spears and Sabra Hannon, who Bianchi and Buono had pimped out at the upholstery shop. They also gave testimony on how they were forced to serve clients, were violently abused and raped, but were ultimately able to escape. Now the defence, of which one of the lawyers is a female, Catherine Mader, and they got a female to make it look better, They say that Bianchi can't be trusted, and although at one time they were friends, that Buono had kicked him out, causing Bianchi to resent him. They also said because Bianchi stayed at Buono's house, which was attached to the auto upholstery shop, that the fibres could have been transferred when he was there. One big thing the defence brought up was that Bianchi had been arrested in January 1979 and Buono, he just made no attempt to run in the 10 months it took to arrest him, even though he knew he was probably under surveillance. 
Now, the defence said that his sexual habits were exotic and they didn't make him a pervert or a killer. Now, his attorney, this Catherine Maida, she even said that a lot of women like to be bossed around and that a lot of women are captivated by this man that they couldn't control. She said the witnesses were too ashamed to say that he wasn't that bad and they enjoyed it. They just wouldn't admit that to police. She also said that what he did wasn't that bizarre and the prosecution make the leap of using dildos and anal sex to kill her. She even produced the book by Irving Wallace, The Sex Lives of Famous People, noting that the author of Alice Through the Looking Glass, Lewis Carroll, had a fixation with little girls under the age of 10, saying many famous people had these traits. Wow. Imagine saying that in court these days, or just tweeting about it like that, like, uh, yeah, bueno, you know, he's not that bad. Everyone's sort of got their kink, you know. <laughs> It just wouldn't go down that well, would it? Anyway, seven of the 12 jurors were female, and so were all the five alternates. Now, 12 of the 17 were black to Latino, including a tree trimmer, a pipe fitter, a housewife, and a Pan Am flight attendant. Both the prosecution and defence were happy with that mix. Now, after all's been said and done, the judge asked the jury to consider all 10 verdicts separately. So it took them nine days to reach the first verdict, with Buono being found guilty of the murder of 18-year-old Judith Weyer. Now, three days later, he'd be acquitted of the murder of Yolanda Washington. But on the 14th day, he was found guilty of the murder of Judy Miller. Then over the course of the next nine days, he'd be found guilty on the seven other murders. Now, this was November 1983, five years after the first murder, and as I said before, two years after the start of this trial. And at the end of the trial, Buono would just make one statement, because he didn't go to the witness box. He said, my morals and constitutional rights has been broken. Buono would be sentenced to life without parole and spared the death sentence. He would die in prison on the 21st of September 2002 at 67 years of age. Now, Bianchi, he's still serving time at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. He was denied parole in 2010, but he can apply again in 2025. Wow, what a case. Now, the only good thing is that these maggots were both finally caught and convicted. Now, this case, Buono and Bianchi were just two depraved scum that fed off each other. It's crazy how in the short period between mid-October and mid-December of 77, just two months, they abducted, raped, tortured and killed nine women. And then one more in January of 78. Now, it hadn't been for Bianchi to try and emulate his behaviour in Bellingham in January of 79, they probably would have never been caught because there seemed to be very little forensic evidence left behind. So little, in fact, that it was Bianchi leaving so much evidence behind in the Bellingham murders that Buono even got to trial, a trial that the prosecution wanted to drop because initially they just thought there wouldn't be enough to convict. Now, lucky the judge rejected that and got in new people to prosecute him. 
And what about the jury? Two years they had to go through all this. Not only would the length of the trial be draining on the soul, but they had to see all the crime scene photos of all the victims. Now that in itself would have been shocking. And let alone to have to hear the graphic depiction of how each of the murders went down. Today, there'd be an abundance of DNA evidence to link each of these murders to start with, just linking the murders, not only together, but also getting the perpetrators. Now, I wasn't able to find out where the victim's clothes were disposed. Now, I'm just assuming, seeing as though most of the murders occurred at the auto upholstery shop, that were just chucked out either in industrial dumps, dumpsters on site, whatever. Buono seemed to not keep any trophies, but Bianchi did, again linking him to the LA murders, which got this whole case blown wide open. Now, Buono was scum, but he kept everything as quiet as he could be. His biggest mistake was getting Bianchi involved as an accomplice. Lastly, I suppose someone has to be the defence attorney. Their job is to put forward the best case for their client and if they don't really put a good case on, that's always grounds for an appeal. But Catherine Mader's comments about women, jeez, like I said, she tweeted those today, she would be destroyed in social media. And how times have changed, and changed, I guess, for the better. Wow, there you go. That was a bit of a case, I can tell you. That is one that I haven't done as much research in any other case as this one. It's It's been over the last couple of months. Oh, my God. Anyway, I'd like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the light on. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, just a dollar's okay. All right, one or two bucks. Please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island and thanks to my latest patrons, Dinaji and Belinda Evans, and also Jaina. If you want to just shout me a beer, you can donate to me, paypal.me forward slash true crime island. I tell you what, a free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases, just like Sarah, Suzama, Adina, Sakaras, and Charles Thorne. Boom fuckalunga. Look, I, I do have a promo at the end of the episode. I, in fact, I'm going to have a few promos coming up over the next lot of cases, so I've got to try and get through them all. Cold Case Canada is based on original research from the book Cold Case Vancouver, the city's most baffling unsolved murders by Eve Lazarus. The episodes include interviews conducted with family, friends, homicide detectives, defence lawyers and prosecutors, a criminologist and a commodore, a coroner. Check it out. But can I just ask you to take the time to share my podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook, whatever. The Island's one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and so far commercial free. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. Go to my website, True Crime Island, where you can find everything you need to stream it, buy stuff, whatever. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boomfuckalunga.
I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm excited to tell you about my podcast, Cold Case Canada. For the past several years, I've been investigating unsolved murders and missing person cases that have mostly been forgotten by everyone except family and friends. I wanted to help to change that and tell the story of their lives, not just their murders. The episodes for Season 3 are based on my book, Cold Case BC, and include an update on the babes in the woods, the two boys found murdered in Stanley Park in 1953. There is the entire Jack family missing from Prince George, and there's a heartbreaking story of three-year-old Casey Bowen, taken from her bed in the middle of the night. I've interviewed law enforcement officials, including homicide detectives who worked on these files. I've talked to the family and friends of the victims. I've looked at the forensics and I've followed the police investigation. I'm convinced that many of these cases can still be solved. Find Cold Case Canada on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts.